Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Confused about fertility and trying to get pregnant? Want to know more but don't know who to ask? Welcome to our podcast, Knocked Up. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison. I have no medical background, but I'm a 39-year-old woman who has frozen her eggs. I'm joined as always by Dr. Rayleigh Alou, a CREI Certified Reproductive Endocrinologist and Infertility Specialist. We started this podcast with the aim to provide easy-to-understand information on hard concepts relating to fertility, infertility and all aspects of women's health. We love reading our listener reviews and work hard to take your feedback on board. If you enjoy listening to Knocked Up and if you find our resource really useful, please take a moment to leave a review as this really helps others to find us. We're answering a listener question today. We've been asked about progesterone and its role in pregnancy. Um, We've talked on previous episodes about steroids and hormones. Maybe you can tell us a bit about what progesterone does specifically? Yeah, so progesterone is a really important hormone in pregnancy. And it's probably, I would say, the dominant hormone in pregnancy. What does it do? Well, progesterone really keeps the pregnancy alive. So it's really important for the formation of the placenta and to support a pregnancy, especially in the early phase, but actually all the way through. And without progesterone, there would be no babies. So it's a really, really super important hormone. It's a steroid. Yeah. And we've talked previously about steroid hormones being made from building blocks of cholesterol. Yeah, that's in our episode about cortisol. Yeah, and there's different enzymes that take that base of the steroid and make it a different kind of steroid. And progesterone is a steroid that is made uh, in the ovary by the corpus luteum, which is the little kind of hormone-making factory that the follicle or the structure around the egg turns into after the egg is released. And really to understand the role of progesterone, you kind of have to understand what happens in a menstrual cycle and in a pregnancy. So maybe we'll talk a bit about the menstrual cycle to start with. Yeah, definitely. So in a normal menstrual cycle... What has to happen, and remember the goal of a menstrual cycle, whether you're in the mood to do this or at the right stage (laughs) of life or not. It has its job to do and it's going to do it anyway. So the role of the menstrual cycle is getting you ready to have a baby. And what happens is there's a bit of competition within the ovary and there are several ovarian follicles, follicles that put their hand up to be involved in a cycle and they're the competitors. So think of it like a race and it's the starting line and there's multiple candidates that kind of line up at the starting line in a month. 
and these are the follicles and each of them has a little egg inside. Only one egg per follicle, but the follicle's made of hundreds of cells and they've got different roles and functions, but mainly they're to protect the egg, help it grow and mature, and also to create the hormonal environment where a pregnancy can happen. So in the beginning of a cycle, there's a process that we call selection and atresia. And what that means is one of the eggs is going to win the race and all the others have run their race. They're out of your ovarian reserve and at the end of the cycle, they're gone, but they're not going to win. And that's because as a species, humans have developed a strategy of having one baby at a time. And this is how we select a dominant egg. So the egg has to be chosen. And this competition is happening in the very early phase of the menstrual cycle. And because the follicles are competing, this is called the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle. And when we've talked about the menstrual cycle being kind of an analogy of the seasons, this is like the spring, the beginning. After you've had your period, which is like the winter, this is the spring where the follicles are starting to wake up and compete. Then what happens is the dominant follicle takes off and it's got two roles. One is to make a mature egg and the other is to be the hormone-making factory that in the first instance grows a nice thick lush endometrium and in the second instance supports a pregnancy. So in the first half of a menstrual cycle, the follicle's making mainly estrogen. And it is the estrogen that rises gradually from one follicle and reaches a peak. While it's rising, it's causing the cells of the lining to grow and thicken and multiply and get ready to make a cushioning lining that is going to eventually become receptive. But estrogen alone does not make the endometrium receptive. And when I talk about endometrial receptivity, I'm talking about the kind of window for implantation for an embryo that opens and closes. But before you can get receptivity, you've got to grow a nice lining. And ideally want the lining to be greater than five millimetres at the very least. And studies have shown that when the lining's over seven millimetres, that's superior in terms of pregnancy rates. Rising estrogen also causes the symptoms that you might relate to fertility or ovulation, although it's actually a misinterpretation to think of these as related to ovulation. It's really the estrogen rise that makes these symptoms happen, but you might get an increase in production of clear cervical mucus, so-called fertile stretchy mucus, and you also have a feeling of well-being, a feeling of increased libido and interest in sex, and this is all an estrogen-related set of symptoms. And then what happens is the follicle, and remember that one follicle makes enough estrogen to do this, gets to a peak and the brain or the hypothalamus, which we've talked about in other episodes is like a control centre, can hear the cry of the rising estrogen and that is what causes a surge in a hormone called LH and also at the same time a surge in a hormone called FSH, luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. Women who are tracking their cycle sometimes by 
little kits that they can test their urine and see if they get a surge of these hormones. And some of the kits can also detect the rising estrogen. And so they can get like a flashy sign and then they can get a peak fertility sign kind of thing. And all of these signs are measuring things that are a prelude to ovulation. You actually ovulate about 37 to 39 hours after you have a surge of LH. So it is that surge of LH and those events that kind of switch the follicle to progesterone making. And after ovulation, the progesterone rises. Now, because you've previously gotten the lining ready nicely with estrogen, in most women, about five days of progesterone production and a rise in progesterone in the system is what it takes to open the implantation window. And very cleverly, nature has made it so that that's kind of consistent with the amount of time that it takes the embryo to travel down the fallopian tube so clever. and arrive in the uterus as a blastocyst. So in nature, that's what happens. And in IVF, we want to time an embryo transfer to replicate that exact scenario. We want to put the blastocyst back in the uterus after it's been in the lab developing at the same time that the embryo would have reached that environment in nature so that there is the optimal chance of implantation or the first steps of creating a a pregnancy. So from the time that you ovulate until about 10 weeks of pregnancy, the dominant place where progesterone is made is the corpus luteum, which is the name of that progesterone-making factory that the ovarian follicle has become. And eventually the corpus luteum burns out and involutes. Um, That's the official medical word for just like going away. And what happens is the progesterone level just goes up and up and up because the placenta starts making it in large quantities. So somewhere between week 7 and week 10, the placenta becomes the dominant place where progesterone is made. Which is why the corpus luteum involute. That's right, it goes away. Because the placenta is taken over. Yeah. There are a very small number of people, and it's real, but it's a very small number of people who have what we call luteal phase deficiency, meaning that when they make a corpus luteum, it doesn't do a good enough job. And we have an episode on luteal phase support. Yeah, well, luteal phase support is when we give extra progesterone, usually, sometimes we give pregnancy hormone, but we give extra progesterone or pregnancy hormone to try and drive the body to make extra progesterone to support the pregnancies. And in some women who have true luteal phase deficiency, giving progesterone support in the luteal phase until the placenta takes over can rescue pregnancies that would otherwise miscarry. So that is a very important group of women to identify, but it is not a common situation. It is a very uncommon situation. Most people who think they have luteal phase deficiency don't have luteal phase deficiency. In IVF, we always give luteal phase support in a stimulated cycle, and that is just because when we stimulate with medications, we're creating follicles under very different circumstances from the natural cycle. And we don't really trust those follicles to make enough progesterone, having collected eggs through an egg collection. So we give extra progesterone to try and make sure that there's enough progesterone. And happily, you can't overdose on progesterone, but it can cause side effects. 
and some of the side effects can be local. So sometimes we give progesterone in a vaginal pessary or um, sometimes as a gel or as a vaginal tablet. And some people get reactions that are almost allergic reactions to those different formulas. They could cause irritation or itch or needing to go to the toilet frequently. And women can sometimes not like that way of giving progesterone. There are other ways of giving progesterone. You can give it orally. The reason we don't usually give it orally is because we have to give quite large doses when we give it orally to sustain an IVF pregnancy. And progesterone has a lot of side effects as an oral drug. It can make you very, very sleepy and not be really able to function. So that's one of the reasons we don't give it orally. And we can give it in an injectable form into the muscle or we can give it in an injectable form under the skin called subcutaneous or subcuticular progesterone, which I quite like, although there have been some problems accessing progesterone in this form in Australia because it's not a very commonly used form, but uh, it's actually very good and I quite like giving that form of progesterone support and I think women quite like it as well because even though it's an injection, it's once a day instead of two or three times a day and it doesn't cause vaginal irritation. So we have to monitor progesterone levels in the blood and make sure that they're high enough. And personally, I like my patients to have progesterone levels that are over 40 um, international units per litre, although many natural pregnancies will have higher levels than that even. But that's kind of what I like in a IVF cycle or in an artificial cycle mm. as the minimum. That's what you look for. That's what I, I, I would, I would get upset and increase the dose if it was below that. And there are, of course, side effects of progesterone and the common ones are also quite familiar because they're side effects of pregnancy. And when you're naturally pregnant, your progesterone levels will be high for nine months. So things like breast so tenderness. So much to look forward to. Yeah. Well, ligaments can become stretchy and that can translate to things like pelvic girdle pain or back pain because your ligaments can become stretchier. Progesterone in some women can cause a bit of mood lability or depressed mood and also water retention, fluid retention. So you can feel a bit bloated. So they're the main side effects of progesterone. Uh, there's different kinds of cycles in IVF. We kind of talked about the natural kind of cycle. Maybe just to cap off the natural cycle, I didn't really finish off about you know, what happens if you don't get pregnant. Well, the corpus luteum involutes quicker. So it, it's kind of got like this feedback system with pregnancy hormones. So let's just say you've had your five days of progesterone for most people, it's five days to get to receptivity. You've got your blastocyst, it's implanted, and it sings back to the corpus luteum with pregnancy hormone, and that is a signal that keeps it alive for up to 10 weeks of pregnancy. If the embryo fails, doesn't implant, no pregnancy hormone message, the corpus luteum will not continue, and it will involute by the end of the menstrual cycle. And if that's the case the progesterone curve will rise and then fall and it's when it gets down to baseline that you have a period and then everything starts again, ready for the next baby. <laughs> if you have a stimulated cycle, it's the same. We give progesterone luteal phase support up until the time where we would do a pregnancy test. It's quite normal for women who have adequate luteal phase support, even if they're not pregnant, not to get a period 
And so sometimes that can cause a bit of false hope and disappointment because you might think, oh, I haven't got a period, I must be pregnant. But no, it's often the luteal phase support or artificial progesterone that's holding off the period. Then there are other types of cycles where we give a completely artificial cycle. When would we do that? There are different scenarios where we might do that. One common scenario is someone who's not regularly ovulating and you want to take over things and and not induce ovulation. Another option there is ovulation induction. It might be someone who's got premature menopause and isn't able to ovulate or someone who's using a donor egg and you want to kind of marry up two cycles with exact timing in sync. Another reason is someone who might have, for example, implantation failure of embryos due to a skewed implantation window. And while that is, again, not common, 90% of people will have receptivity after five days of progesterone. There are some patients where they get receptive early and there are other patients where they take a bit longer to get receptive. And in patients like that, I often do a test called the ERA or ERA where we look at about 200 plus different proteins expressed by the receptive endometrium. I run that in an artificial regimen because I want to be able to exactly replicate my findings in the real deal. So we call a mock cycle. Some people call it a dummy run. And instead of putting an embryo back after giving five days of progesterone, we take a biopsy and we assess the endometrium for all of these proteins. And what we can do then is say, where are you at at this point? You should be receptive. This is when we would have put an embryo back. And the answer will either come back as yes, receptive, in which case we'd just repeat the exact same regimen. And you would expect with an artificial regimen that this is how you will behave in every cycle because all of the conditions will be exactly the same. And you can know that you've put the embryo back at the right time. You might have a pre-receptive finding, meaning that you need a bit longer in terms of progesterone and I've had patients like that where we've done the transfer on day six instead of day five and they've gotten pregnant and you can have the opposite where you're post-receptive and you should be doing the transfer earlier. So really the point of ERA is to personalise the timing of embryo transfer for people who are outside of what most people are where their implantation window is skewed and to help them get pregnant by getting the timing right for them because we're all very different. Our bodies are different. We're not machines. When you think about all the other biological characteristics and where we are compared to the mean, it's really obvious that some people are outside of where most people are and that's true for implantation as well. The other good reason to do the era in a artificial cycle and why wouldn't I do it in a natural cycle Well, every natural cycle is a little bit different from every other natural cycle. So if I ovulate this month from a particular follicle, that follicle will have a slightly different number of cells that make it compared to a follicle coming in the next month. The hormone levels that it will make will be slightly different. So it won't be exactly the same. Well, I think we know our cycles, sometimes they're 28 days, sometimes they're 27, sometimes we get it at night, our period. It's always different. Yeah, so our hormones are always going to be a little bit different in every natural cycle. And so you can't replicate it as scientifically as you can an artificial cycle. And that's why my patients will know I tend to do ERA investigations in an artificial cycle because I know that whatever my findings are, I can replicate exactly exactly in the next cycle where we're going to put the real embryo back. 
The other thing just to point out, remember we talked about how there's what we call the luteal placental transition where the corpus luteum involutes and the placenta takes over and there's a little bit of overlap. So look, in an artificial cycle, we generally continue all of the medications up until 10 weeks because by then we know that the placenta is taken over or has taken over and the pregnancy is then what we call autonomous or making its own progesterone and looking after itself. I know that progesterone is in the pill and in the mini pill. What else can it be used for? So other roles of progesterone, you're right, it can be used as a contraceptive. So it helps you keep a pregnancy but it also stops you from getting pregnant? Yeah, so look, this comes down to exactly what we were talking about, about a window of implantation being very specific. And, you know, it's amazing that species survive like humans when we could only get pregnant for a very short amount of time of our cycle. And look, I guess we've got to think about it from an evolutionary perspective that if we were pregnant at the drop of a hat every second, I mean, pregnancy is one of the most dangerous things that can happen to a woman in the natural world. And there are advantages for not being super fertile in a world without contraception. In terms of contraception, how progesterone methods work is by stuffing up that window of receptivity. If you've got progesterone there from the beginning of your cycle, guess what? No, have one. no implantation window. So that's how the marina coil or the levonorgestrel IUD works, by just having progesterone there all the time. You never get a receptive window. When you have the implanon rod, same. You've got high levels of progesterone in your bloodstream all the time. You're never going to have a receptive window. The mini pill works in the same way, although with the caveat that the mini pill has exactly to be taken the same exactly time every day. Same time every day. Um, otherwise, you can have a breakthrough ovulation and things can go wrong. But it, it works on a similar principle. When you have high levels of progesterone, like on the mini pill when it's taken perfectly, or in the oral contraceptive pill where you have both progesterone and estrogen as well, and also the implanon, high levels of the hormone can stop you from ovulating by the way that estrogen's made in the brain because remember progesterone and estrogen are kind of quite related and similar and there are different enzymes in the brain that translate steroids and very ultra high levels of progesterone can stop ovulation that way but it's actually the estrogen in the brain that is the messenger. Uh, Progesterone only contraceptives are really good for people who can't take estrogen So things like a family history of a blood clot or a personal history of a blood clot in the lung or the leg or someone who's had a migraine with aura should be told not to use estrogen contraceptives. And uh, that's a really good method. And there are many what we call LARCs or long-acting contraceptives that are really, really user-friendly. There are a few other medical uses of progesterone Mainly, there's been a new allowance for progesterone to be used on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme for women who have a higher risk of miscarriage. Oh, how does it help? Well, we know that the kind of progesterone role is to support the pregnancy and so in women who might be suffering true luteal phase deficiency, that might be helpful. But also we know that progesterone just settles down the muscle of the uterus, makes it relaxed, makes it happy. So giving some extra progesterone might help in that way. There have been studies from around the world with mixed findings on this topic, but it is being used. And the other time it can sometimes be used is in a threatened miscarriage. So when 
someone's had bleeding in early pregnancy and the pregnancy is still alive and okay and we don't think there's anything wrong with the pregnancy, then we can give progesterone to try and reduce the risk that a miscarriage will proceed. And we also do use vaginal progesterone in women who have had a previous preterm birth with cervical length shortening as that can reduce the risk of the same thing happening again or delay when it happens so that the baby gets to a later gestational age and is less premature. So these are other potential uses of progesterone as a therapy. Very interesting hormone. It's a very interesting hormone. And thank you for listening to today's episode of Knocked Up. Our episode today on progesterone was a listener question. And if you've got one, please be in touch via our email, podcast at Women's Health Melbourne, or be in touch on the socials at Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou. For more information about progesterone or other hormones, fertility and women's health, you can visit womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. Thank you for joining us. If you have time to leave us a rate and review, we'd really appreciate it. It really helps others to find us. Thank you so much.